Welcome to Reptopod Podcast, where we discuss keeping styles, news, and uncommon species. Your hosts for Reptopod Podcast are Kyle from D20 Exotics and Bryce from Prime Exotics, bringing you awesome content about exotics. So Bryce, how was your trip to Africa? Because you left us for the last couple weeks for Africa. Yeah, so I spent three weeks in Africa, uh, exactly 21 days. So the day that we came back was exactly 21. And it was a crazy experience, so many different cultures. I was at three different countries, but if we want to count all countries with layovers, I was at nine different countries. I don't remember each one, I have them written down somewhere. But the actual countries I was staying in was Cameroon, Kenya, and South Africa. So starting off with just Cameroon, Africa, I know some people over there that own a Bible college, and we were spending a lot of time there. And of course, I did a ton of reptile stuff on the side, but the first week mainly was just hanging out with them and learning the just how they run things there. And one thing that was really crazy is they they have a hospital there or more of like a clinic, and they get snake bites and like you know all the time. And this is how they, let me go to my notes, this is how they hear all their snake bites, is they have this black rock, and they put it on the snake, they first cut the snake bite, and then put this black rock, they don't know the name of the rock, but they put the rock on the snake bite, and it's basically like a magnet, and it like sucks the venom out. I, I have no idea if that's true or not, but that's that's what they've been doing for the past few years. And, is that successful? Yeah, I mean, they say, they don't believe in anti-venom or anti-venim, and yeah, I, I asked to see the rock, but they didn't have any when I was there, but of course, you know, but that's that's what they do, they've treated mamba bites before, and yeah, I don't, they said they've never had a patient die before, so I don't know if there's just been no snake bites, but I don't know. Um, that's interesting, I mean, yeah. that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, we tried to find the rock. We went to a couple markets where they normally get it, and they just didn't have any. So I don't, <laughs> I don't know if they're lying about it. No, I don't think they're lying. But it's just, yeah, I thought that was crazy because I never even heard of anything like that. But in Cameroon, yeah, it's very hot, and I did a lot of herping at nighttime mainly during the day. I was just so busy with other things, so at nighttime I did a lot of herping, and I was not too successful there. Where I was staying, it was very remote, but it's like. There's a huge fence and everything, and it's all gated in, and there's, like, security at nighttime, and there wasn't too much of just leaving the area, um, just because, first thing, like, it's not safe, not, like, reptile and say, like, the humans there, there's just villages all around, and they're not a fan of other races, and so there wasn't, I didn't find too much, I found a lot of gecko species, or lizard species, but I actually found, like, no snakes in Cameroon, which is pretty crazy. Um, but the last day we were there, we went to the Cameroon Zoo, which was, it was definitely something. If you see how the people are living there, it makes sense how they're keeping their animals and reptiles. They only had, like, a few snakes. And, I mean, these snakes are literally, like, I don't know how they're alive. All starved, you know. And also the people there have, like, the titles. This is so funny. So there was a rock python, and the title just said Viper on it. And I thought that was the funniest thing. I think I have a picture somewhere, actually. Solid. Yeah, I was like, yeah, it's perfect. And they had some other things, but I don't want to get too into that. Yeah, it was very just, like I said, how you see the people living there, it makes sense how 
bad, like how the animals are treated. Uh, they they had a lion. I think it was the lion that had his ears were bleeding completely. I think it was the lion that was like that. And they did have some uh, Nile crocodiles were, that were actually completely overweight, which was crazy. And they were just like boxed in. I wish I could just like show you guys this stuff, uh, like pictures and everything. But there's, yeah, I mean, there's nothing I can do. I can't complain to them. They all speak French, so, I mean, they wouldn't even understand me. But, so, yeah, that, I spent that first week in Cameroon, and then we flew over to Kenya, and we were only there for three full days, and I actually went to visit an orphanage called 5810, and we've been, like, talking to these people for a while. So, we were there for a couple of days at the orphanage, and the next day, we went on a safari, and that was, like, a one-in-a-lifetime experience. We saw lions, zebras, ostriches, rhinos, buffalo, stuff like that. We did not see... So they have something called the, the Big Five, which is uh, elephant, leopard, rhino, buffalo, and lion. Did I say lion already? I don't even know. So that's like the Big Five, and that's like the main... The Big Five of Africa. And we saw four... Or we saw three of the five there... And the next day was South Africa, and we went to an elephant park, and we're with a bunch of elephants. So we saw four of the big five. We didn't see leopards the entire trip, but, I mean, it was still pretty cool. So at the elephant park, I'll skip over Kenya, there wasn't too much. And so South Africa, we went to this big elephant park, and they had, at one point, over 40 elephants living on the property. And it's basically like an orphanage for elephants. It's all, like, rescues from zoos that can't keep them anymore. And so we, when we were there, though, they only had five because they, all, when they get healthy, they send them to game parks. So there was only five there. And, but I mean, you're like right up next to them, walking with them, feeding them, stuff like that. And while we were in South Africa, we had no idea how cold it was going to be, but it was like low 60s the entire week. And while Cameroon was like, you know, high 90s and everything. So we didn't pack at all for cold. And anyway, so that's like their winter time right now. So there was like I went herping a couple of times, but there's nothing out right now. I mean, you don't even see any lizards out. But they do have something called a boomslung snake. Do you know what that is, Kyle? Yeah, the, that. I mean they call it the what the, the boomswang or something weird. Yeah, boom I mean it's really a boom slang that we call it, but uh, yeah. So they, they have yeah, so they have those everywhere there actually, and they're rear fang venomous. And I didn't get to see any, but they're always in trees. And it was winter, that's why I didn't see that many, but they're winter. They're, they're always in trees, just eating birds and everything. And But yeah, that was just a... I never heard it. I, I heard of it, but not people seeing them. So, that was so real quick, cool. on, on boom slings, right? Have you heard of Dr. Parl, or Carl P. Schmidt? I think I've heard of him. Yeah, so he was a, a herpetologist... In the, I think it was early 1900s, uh. or, or not? No, not early 1900s. Early, early 90s or 80s. Okay. Um, I think it was then. Uh, but he was studying, um, the boomslang, and at the okay. time they didn't know it was venomous, and he ended up uh. getting bit. Uh, and while it is a rear fang venomous species, it's very rear fang venomous. Yes. Yes. Um, I've heard that. And so, instead of him going and seeking medical attention, either either because he was too curious about the side effects, or because he knew that there wasn't going to be a treatment for it, yeah, 
um, he basically just stayed at home, did his normal thing, and like recorded all the side effects that he got in his notes. It's so really spent, like a day and a half recording what was going on, like down to the T of like I ate two pieces of toast for breakfast. Uh, I'm bleeding from my eyes and like stuff like this. Oh, and he like recorded all of that, and that was his like his legacy that he left behind was uh, recording the side effects that he received from a did he bite. did he die? Yeah, it? oh yeah, he died. Yeah, it was like last die. piece of entry was like I ate a piece of toast and some eggs. Uh, really, I have not heard that. Uh, That's then crazy. His wife, like, got home and found him dead. Wow. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a pretty, it's an interesting thing to read about too, because like, it's just he he just documented what his life was. He's like, I took the nine a.m. train, uh, then like I went home and I like, wow, was bleeding a lot. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the thing. Like that people don't get sometimes that just because it's rear fang venomous doesn't mean it can't hurt you. Now some snakes yeah. it's different, but boom I mean snakes are very um when you talk about rear fang venomous, boom slangs I think are actually marked as venomous, though technically yeah. they're they're rear fang, not front fang. But they're wow. they're marked as a venomous species, at least in the US. I I never actually heard that. That's crazy. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. Wow. But, yeah, they have they have a lot of them there and we were we were in South Africa and it's called Nija, was the city. And yeah, they have a lot there, actually. Again, it was like winter, so I didn't get to really see anything. But yeah, wow. So yeah, the, um, South Africa was the end of the trip. Uh, we were there for a week. Uh, towards the end, we went. We uh, flew to Cape Town for a layover. And we visited this snake zoo, I could, call, uh, I could say. And it was basically just like a huge... Uh, Kind of like an RV. It was a little strange. And there was a woman in there that had just a bunch of snakes in there. And she had black mambas, green mambas. And it was a pr- it was pretty cool. And she used to own a zoo with another guy. And something end up, ended up happening. And they closed down the whole place and just kept the snakes. And now they keep it in like an RV outside of the Cape Town Aquarium. Which is a huge aquarium. And they keep it outside of there. And That's interesting. yeah, we, we were even going there. We were going to the aquarium and I saw that and I was like, whoa. So yeah, it was, it was something. So we went to the aquarium and the aquarium was amazing. That was the only good zoo aquarium thing that was actually good. All the animals there, it was all aquatic stuff, but all good condition. I mean, none of it was like bad enclosures or anything or tanks, I should say. And that was the only, it was good, that was the last day we were there, so it was ending on a good experience, you know. But that was pretty much the trip. That was, there wasn't too much of reptile stuff, but that's the the summary of the trip, we can say. So, Kyle, what have you done in the past month? I don't know, I mean, I I can't say I've been to nine countries, or like, (laughs) saw a bunch of massive animals, and went to a bunch (laughs) of zoos or anything. Um, there's not a whole lot going here. Mostly preparation for moving the collection because I am moving here in a couple months. Right. Um, you know, just normal care, getting animals out of quarantine that are ready to be out of quarantine. Um, so I got the the Taiwanese beauty is still kind of in quarantine, but I want to set him up with something a little bit better than the quarantine tub. Yeah, so he's basically like in his normal enclosure, but still in quarantine. 
which naturally I set up these nice these nice uh, perches and stuff for him to go up on because he loves to climb, um, mm-hmm. and he doesn't use any of them. So that's exciting. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely interesting. Uh, I'm ready for him to come out of quarantine and get him on display, because that'll be a a real fun snake to just watch on display. He doesn't really hide much at all. That's awesome. um, Which is always nice with species like that. Yeah, unlike the Hondurans. Right, the Hondurans that I haven't seen. Their their food (laughs) just disappears in their enclosure, basically. Yeah. Um, It's just a, a giant box of dirt that just disappears when I put food in there. Yeah, but um, yeah. There's not a whole lot going on here. Mostly just kind of planning out the reptile room uh, in the new place and figuring out where everything's going to go and and how it's going to happen. It will be nice because I'll actually have like a dedicated reptile room. Right now, it's, it's mostly just like half of my living room is what I call the reptile room. <laughs> yeah. Um, Are you? Are you planning on expanding a lot, like reptile-wise, like your collection? I I don't really want to expand that much. I do want to like kind of hone in on the species that I want to keep and the genes that I want in those species. So like, yeah. uh, which is obviously not apparent with me picking up a beauty rat snake, but nonetheless, um, I kind of want to focus on the Hondurans a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, then with the corn snakes, I want to focus on the genes more. Because, like, my collection with corn snakes right now is kind of just everywhere. Like, there That's isn't... It's it's just, like, whatever genes I got at the time. I don't know why. It was just like, yeah, oh, yeah. this cool. Let's get this, right? Without <laughs> yeah, thinking I get it. of, like, where does this tie into my collection? Yeah, uh, yeah, I get that. Plans. So that's more going to be, like, honing in, like, specific genes that I want for the corn snakes. Uh, the Hondurans, I suspect, will be ready to breed next season um so i'll be able to breed my pearl and and i don't know if any of the females are going to be ready except for the ghost so it'll probably be the the uh, pearl with a ghost for the pairing so i'll produce a whole bunch of ghosts basically ghost yeah that's awesome um which will be fun that'll be i mean that's not a that's absolutely not a bad pairing just start yeah yeah no definitely with Hondurans at all. Not just normals. Right. There's no normals coming out of there. It's going to be all <laughs> ghosts. Head albino. That's so, awesome. Yeah, that'll that'll definitely be really good. But uh, that's pretty much all that's going on with me. Uh, awesome. New reptile room is going to be a bit different. So yeah. I'm going to be changing up a lot when it comes to the organization of enclosures. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to get new racks put in. Um, not like actual racks, but like shelves, basically. Yeah, yeah, I know. I get um, it. Mostly because the shelves that I have right now was perfect for the size of the enclosure that I got them for. Which I don't use anymore. Uh, so now it's just like a lot of dead space on these. Because it was fitting like three of the enclosures I wanted. I then ended up switching tub brands and changed up a bunch since then. So the tubs that I use now, um, it only fits two on their shelves and a bunch of dead space. So I want to get some new shelves that fit a little bit better that I can fit more on. Uh, awesome. That's all exciting. There, Yeah. So I didn't go to nine countries, but uh, <laughs> I'm moving a lot of snakes. So. Yeah. That's awesome. 
Alright, for today's episode, we're bringing on Paris, who works with axolotls and a little bit of Crash Geckos. Uh, so Paris, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Alright, yeah, so my name's Paris. I run Critters in the Valley. Um, I work with axolotls, crested geckos, um, and then I just, I keep snakes, but I don't breed them. Um, but yeah, they're really fun. I absolutely love the axolotls. That's my favorite part of, uh, breeding my animals. Um, typically I have about 20 to 50 babies, axolotl babies at a time. Um, so it's kind of crazy here. But it's fun. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know a lot of people that breed axolotls. Like, yeah, it's I, very difficult. It's I easy for them to breed, but it's very difficult to keep them alive. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard that because, like, every expo I go to, I only see like two breeders, if that, mm-hmm. that have them. So I rarely see ever axolotls. That's awesome that you're doing it. I feel mm-hmm. like that's a lot of babies, too. Like, when we talk about, it like, yeah. breeding, like, we're not yeah. typically talking about that many babies. Yeah, and so, typically... like, when I'm talking about breeding corn snakes and hunterans, I'm thinking, like, <laughs> all right, what am I going to do with these 6 to 12 babies, not yeah. 20 to 50? Yeah, it can take a while to sell them as well. Um, I have a clutch from December that I started selling in... March and I had 24 from them and I'm down to seven now so it's a lot of work to actually get them sold as well especially if you aren't like one of the big breeders yeah but I enjoy it and it's really fun (laughs) do you have to keep each baby separate in different tanks so I do um not every breeder does um there's sort of like a rift in the breeding community between communally raising and individually raising. I'm I'm very pro individual raising. Um axolotls can regrow their limbs, but it takes away from their growing time and that also means that they won't reach their full growth potential if they do have nipped limbs. Mm. Um and keeping them together, they're very dumb. They think uh any movement is food, so they yeah. will by each other's limbs off. So I keep all of mine separate from the day they hatch, essentially. Wow. And I think I heard this somewhere. I just want to double check. I'm not a huge axolotl expert or anything. Mm-hmm. Do they... I think I feel like I heard that if they get stressed out, they can, like, basically turn to salamanders. So Is that right? It depends on their genes. So uh, I actually brought some... I had a show today, and I brought some of my morphed axolotls that I rescued um with me um but morphing is all genetic Mm. um we didn't know that until very recently okay Uh, the boys that i have uh their parents were siblings someone irresponsibly bred them together and Mm. eventually the parents also ended up morphing after the clutch was laid um and all a hundred of the babies that they kept ended up morphing as well but it is completely genetic um, the issue with it is that it's not a recessive or dominant tr- dominant trait. Um, it's polygenic, um, so mm. it's very difficult to trace. Um, but that's why we, as axolotl breeders, should not be breeding axolotls that we get from pet stores or um, big chain breeders. You have to know like the very specific, down to the names of the parents and the grandparents, at the very least. 
preferably that makes more. sense yeah that makes sense i i didn't know it's called morphing but now that i hear mm-hmm. it i remember that now that's cool that's really interesting because like in the reptile hobby we discuss a lot that it's like like inbreeding isn't necessarily terrible um mm-hmm. it's realistically it will happen in the wild as well yeah, so with axolotls, it's really unique because we can't get any more from the wild now. Um, mm. Axolotls in captivity all originated from, I believe it was like seven axolotls back in the 1800s. Wow. Um, so that's basically our entire captive population comes from those seven. So they're extremely inbred. Any two random axolotls will have an inbreeding coefficient of 35%, which is more than two human siblings having a child together. So it's very, very high uh, inbreeding rate. So you have to be extremely careful when choosing uh, the parents of your clutches. Yeah, that is crazy. So with them being so endangered, are there people that are letting them out into the water trying to, like... The issue was, so axolotls originated from Mexico. They came from one lake. Unfortunately, that lake does not exist anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. It was completely destroyed due to humans uh, releasing tilapia into the water. Um, Mm -hmm. The tilapia went and ate all the axolotls and the babies. So there is no uh, lake that we can release them into, even if we did get a, uh, a breeding project going to release them back into the wild. Um... And our axolotls in captivity are uh, technically hybrids. Back in, I believe it was sometime in the okay. 1970s, they were bred to tiger salamanders, um, which are very closely related to them, mm. which is also how the morphing gene got introduced because tiger salamanders uh, naturally morph, unlike axolotls. Okay. Wow, yeah, no, I did not know that at all. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you keep your salamanders, like, obviously not the nitty-gritty, but, like, mm-hmm. what does your, your keeping style really entail for the... Yeah, so for my adults, I am working towards getting all of my adults in their own 40-gallon breeders. That's the minimum tank size that I recommend. Um, some breeders will tell you 20-gallon. Unfortunately, that's not correct anymore. Um mm-hmm. Upon uh, further research and checking the water parameters, a 20-gallon would need a water change every two days to stay under the safe nitrate um, amount, which is a lot of water changing. Um, For my 40-gallons, I do one water change a week, and that typically keeps it under the the safe amount. Um, My adults are fed every day or offered food every day. They don't always take food every day, but they'll eat when they're hungry. Um, mm-hmm. For my babies, it's easiest to do what's called tubbing. Basically, you get like a little uh, Sterilite tub, and you change the water out daily. And since I do individually raising, I have about 50 of those at a time. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, so it takes and quite a few hours of my day to... Uh, to change all that water. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So I feel like changing water bowls for me is like an afternoon activity, <laughs> let alone like the entire tanks, basically. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. So, how easy is it to keep one as a pet? So, not with breeding, like if you're keeping one specifically. Mm-hmm. So, it depends on your experience with aquatics. 
Um, axolotls are very specialized. They need extremely cold water, which most people cannot achieve without a chiller or fans. Um, I'd say that keeping the water cold is one of the hardest parts. The other hardest part is cycling. Um, I am lucky enough to have a basement that is extremely cold, so I can keep my axolotls down there without having to need a chiller or a fan. Um, but that is not normal. Typically, you will need something to cool the water down. Um, and then, yeah. So that's Sorry. the first hardest part. And then the second hardest part is actually cycling the tank, which takes about two months to do. Um, wow. That's typically what turns people off from axolotls, because people don't want to put that amount of effort into a uh, an aquatic pet. Yeah. So you would say it is not a good beginner pet. It is not a beginner pet. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) As fun as they are to keep, they are definitely something that's specialized and need a lot of research. It's not something that you can really go and, like, pick up at a reptile expo and then do your research. Um, Yeah. But, yeah. (laughs) I feel like that would be really difficult to keep here in Arizona, at least. Yeah, especially, like, I'm up in Ohio, so it's not too bad trying to keep our water cold. Um, but yeah, if you're, like, in a hotter state, it's gonna be very difficult. <laughs> yeah, Kyle, we can't keep them at all. Yeah, I that's probably <laughs> why I've never seen an axolotl for sale around here. <laughs> yeah, that explains yeah. it in Florida. <laughs> at oh all gosh, these expos. Yeah, I've heard all my friends in Florida are like, how do I keep my water colder? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that makes some more sense then. <laughs> um, so this, I might be completely wrong about. There's like neon axolotls, right? They're probably not even called neon. But they're did... called green fluorescent protein. Okay. Um, it was a gene introduced by laboratories a while back to study regeneration. Okay. Um, so they spliced jellyfish DNA mm-hmm. and they introduced it to axolotls. Um, it was not originally supposed to be released into the pet trade. I don't remember exactly how it got released, but it did end up getting released. Um, and there are a couple other different fluorescent proteins as well. Um, there's red fluorescent protein, um, but red fluorescent protein is far, uh, rarer. Um, you're not going to be able to find that without knowing people. <laughs> is that, like, the same thing with glowfish? Or is yes, that, like, complete? it is the same, yeah, that's That's what same, I was thinking. Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah, I was thinking it was something like that, so. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what sets you apart from other keepers? I'd say uh, individually raising. There are not many breeders who do individually raise their babies. Um, It's a lot of work, for sure. As I've mentioned, it's a lot of water changing. Um, But I find that it's healthiest for the babies, so I'll do what they need done. Um, Yeah. Uh, The other thing that sets me apart is actually keeping my animals in... uh, big enclosures. A lot of axolotl breeders do overstock their tanks pretty significantly. Um, I just, I don't like doing that because, one, the animals are less healthy, and they're far more stressed, and then they won't breed as well if they're stressed. Um, Mm. but yeah, even my crested geckos, I keep them in 18 by 18 by 24s um, when they're adults. So yeah, I'd say that enclosure size and, uh, all that is probably what sets me apart. So do you see other axolotl breeders at expos? I know you mentioned you just got back from an expo. I do, yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, not all of them are 
good. Um, there are a lot of sketchy breeders currently in the hobby, unfortunately. Um, it's very difficult to find the good breeders. Um, there are a lot of people who just decide to do it and then don't realize what Axolotls actually is. Um, I get contacted all the time by people asking why all their axolotl babies died. And typically it is someone who didn't know what they were doing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there a specific morph of axolotl? Are they called morphs, I guess? Yeah, they're called morphs. Okay. Is there a specific you work with, or is it... Um, it's a little bit of everything. We don't have too many morphs. Um, we have... Albino, melanoid, exanthic, copper, leucistic, hypomelanistic, green fluorescent protein, and red fluorescent protein. Um, wow. And yeah. you do this all on your own? Or do yep. you is this Yeah, this is all on my own. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that seems like a lot of work then. It is. How many yeah. How many did you say you keep uh breeders wise? Um, Not like babies. Breeder wise so I do share breeding stock with some of my breeder friends. So not all of them are like mine permanently. Mm -hmm. Um, currently I have seven adults in my axolotl room right now. Um, but I do have some others that I own that I'm lending to friends for breeding. Wow, yeah, that's really cool. And you have you have other species as well besides axolotls, right? Yep, yeah. Um, for pets, I have an African egg-eating snake, um, a corn snake, garter snakes, I have hissing cockroaches, the crested geckos, tarantulas, jumping spiders, fish, um, cats, dogs, pretty much anything <laughs> you can think of. <laughs> wow. Can you talk yeah, about the egg-eating snake a little bit? There's not a lot of people yeah. I don't know too yeah. often. Yeah, so I'm planning on working uh, on breeding them when my female is ready. She will not uh. be ready for a very long time. She's a captive bred baby, um, which is extremely difficult to find for African egg-eating snakes. It took me yeah. six years to find one, um, so wow. I'm very excited to have her. Her name is yeah, Sunny so Side I, Up. She's I don't a, know if she's I've a ever very seen girl. one <laughs> that was captive bred. Uh, yeah. Available, at least. Yeah, it yeah. That, it and it's such a long it's time. It's hard. It's hard to, to breed and keep them because realistically, yeah. you have to have a lot of stock for eggs, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So like, you need like the the what is it the the button quail eggs. Yeah. Currently, mine is eating finch eggs. I have a yeah. I have a family friend who breeds finches, so luckily Perfect. I get those for free. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. For everything that I've heard was like, if you are getting a baby, you have to be able to get finch eggs. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like if you are. Getting an African egg-eating snake, you need to find the food source first. That's the mistake that a lot of people make, and then they don't know where to get the food, and then it ends up starving to death. Wow. I know a lot of breeders uh, have mentioned that essentially when they breed and they're looking for homes, the like the person buying the baby has to prove that they can get mm -hmm. like yep. the, the eggs for it first. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of people will lie and say, "Oh, yeah, I have, I have a, uh, I have a source," and then they don't. <laughs> yeah. So, Paris, what species would you like to work with in the future? Um, I would really like to work with African egg snakes, but that is not for a very long time. Um, I'd also really like to work with uh, 
tiger salamanders. That's what I'm working with next. I just ordered a breeding pair last week, so I'm hoping that they breed for me nice. next year. They are notoriously difficult to breed. So we'll see if they actually breed for me next year. Um, But yeah, tiger salamanders are probably the biggest one that I really want to work with. Um, They're very closely related to axolotls. Um, and it's almost impossible to find captive bred babies of them. Uh, so that's what I'm going to be working towards. Um, as for the future, African egg-eating snakes and garter snakes are what I want to work with. Um, but that's not for a while. <laughs> and you said tiger salamanders and axolotls used to get bred together. Yes, they were bred together in laboratories. Um, that's how we got the albino gene in axolotls. Oh. Um, it was originally found in tiger salamanders, so scientists crossed them over to axolotls. Wow. Yeah, I did not know that either. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, Paris, you're working with crested geckos as well. Um, yes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this is my first season actually breeding them. Uh, so I haven't had any hatch out yet, um, but I've been doing a lot of research on them for a couple years, and I decided to jump into them. Uh, so I have two females and a male. Um, currently, I have five eggs in my incubator. Um, two of them are very, very close to hatching. They're getting really big now, so they should hatch out soon. Um, but yeah, my crested geckos are kept in 18 by 18 by 24s when they're adults, and then I have some 8 by 8 by 8s and 8 by 8 by 12s for while they're babies. Um, all front opening enclosures. So I'm really excited. I've been preparing for a while. It's just when they hatch. <laughs> it takes a very long time for their eggs to hatch. Yeah, that's really exciting. What morphs are they? Uh, so I'm primarily working with harlequins right now. Um, mm. So my male is a dark-based uh, tricolor harlequin. Um, one of my females is a uh, a low-expression harlequin. Um, I believe she's a dark-based as well. And then I have a red-based um, extreme harlequin as well. Those are some amazing babies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're beautiful. I'm really excited. And are you planning on selling them right away, or are you planning on keeping them or keeping um, one? I'm going to keep them back for a little bit just to watch them and make sure that they grow properly. Um, but I should be selling most of them. That's awesome. So, Paris, what gets you excited about reptile keeping or amphibian keeping? Um. Oh, that's a hard question. Uh, I've just I've always loved reptiles and amphibians. Um. My parents were very against me keeping reptiles and amphibians for a very long time. Uh, I didn't get my first one until, I want to say it was probably 2020 is when I got my first uh, reptile species. It was a bearded mm. dragon. <laughs> um, Perfect. Yeah. But what gets me excited about it is just learning all the different genetics. I'm really into the genetics aspect. I'm hoping to go into it for my career. So I, even if I'm not going to be working with the species, I always like research all the genetics and how they work. Um, that's probably my favorite part of keeping reptiles. Yeah. And I said this before, but it's awesome that you are breeding axolotls. Cause again, there's like, at least in Florida, there's like no one that's doing it and how endangered mm-hmm. they are. And yeah. so is there any way to like 
repopulate them in the wild? Or is there, like... Um, so there have been efforts to do so, but I don't think that they'll end up working out just because their original lake was destroyed. Yeah. Um, unless they figure out a way to clean up that lake, there's essentially no chance of them surviving in the wild. The last sighting of them, I believe, was ten years ago now. Wow. Um, yeah, so they're most likely extinct in the wild. Um, yeah. It sucks because they are such an awesome species. So Paris, where can our listeners find you? So I mostly post on my Facebook page. Uh, it's Critters in the Valley. Um, that's where I post most of my like breeding plans and all my different axolotls and how they're doing and stuff. Um, I'm also on TikTok, um, Instagram, Morph Market, pretty much any social media at Critters in the Valley. <laughs> and Kyle, where can we find you? You can find me on Instagram at D20Exotics. And that's pretty much it. I'm mostly just on Instagram. And what about you? I am on Instagram at Prime Exotics with an X. And also we have a Discord server where we go live for this podcast, for this recording. And we do this every time we record. So if you guys want to hear us live, you can go and join the Discord server. All of the links that we said are going to be in the description. So make sure to check us out. And thank you guys for listening.